take our Bibles this morning and let's find the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and we're continuing in our study through Philippians as it relates to God's design for a healthy church. And today we get to the issue of unity. Uh, prison. I'm sure there were other things that uh, might occupy his mind at the time, but uh, to uh, give us a letter instructing us of some, some things that are necessary in the church, and, and in particular at Philippi, uh, the church is not perfect. The church is in need of this letter. Uh, they're in need to, you know, work on things, as we all are. Uh, we certainly work, our work's in progress, and uh, there are days we do really good. Uh, and then there are days that we don't do so good. We have our moments, to say the least. Uh, God doesn't give up on us. He gives us instruction. He gives us what we need. And, and this letter is that, to the church at large, as a whole. How to feel God's purpose and His plan and achieve what God has us to do collectively as a body of believers in a local church. Uh, so with that in mind, let us stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word and We'll start there in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, conce or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us, God, to receive the word this morning. Uh, Lord, strengthen us in our walk with you and may we truly uh, understand the teaching today and that we respond in faith to it. We love you, we need you, we ask for your blessings upon it today in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Uh, so as we go through this this morning, uh, Paul's going to give us uh, four things, then he's going to give us three things. And then two things, and then one example. Uh, so I could have probably been clever and called this countdown to unity or something like that, but I just felt like unity would suffice. So anyway, uh, as we dive into this uh, this morning, we need to realize that you know Paul was the church planter, and we use that terminology in Christian vocabulary often. Because it truly is what I think encapsulates well 
what he is doing and what we are doing as a, as a body of Christ when we're talking about church plants. And that's, that's what they are. They're a plant. And you understand, as I alluded to, I think it was last week, that you, know, you can go buy a plant, uh, you can go buy some seeds, you go put them in the ground, and that's when really the work begins. Uh, just because you bought it and just because it's in the dirt does not guarantee that it's going to grow. As a matter of fact, I can, I can write a book, A Thousand and One Ways to Kill a, plant, a Perfectly Good Plant, um, and do all the traditional things. It's not that I have a green it's a black one, evidently. Anyway, uh, we understand that terminology, that if you plant something, you have to nurture it, you have to give it water, it needs that, etc. And I think the terminology in, in you know, Christendom alludes us to understand that aspect of it, that it is growth. And here's Paul, the church planner. There's a church at Philippi. He's in prison. And what's on his mind? What's on his heart? He wants to give the church something that will help it grow. It's already been planted, but it is in need of something. And as a body of believers, we are in need of understanding unity, really what it is and what it is not. It's not just believing the same thing on every little issue uh, per se. But it is a foundational thing in that we understand there is a need to understand the truth of God and, and what He desires for us and we are unified in and around those things and then out of that uh, is our mission, out of that is our purpose uh, and our goal. So when He dives into this in verse 1, He gives us four incentives four incentives for unity in the church. He says, uh, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy. Uh, those four things he alludes to there as being our incentive for unity. Uh, notice here, he talks about reconciliation in Christ, that consolation in Christ. Understanding that as Christian people now, we are told that we are the ambassadors of Christ. That we are giving a message to, to others. And that message is that there is reconciliation possible through the person of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because God has changed us from people that are uh, standing before God as sinners in, in uh, judgment of God to those that are now made right before God because our sin has been placed in full on the person of Christ. And so there's great consolation in that. There's great comfort in that. Knowing that the God of the universe, uh, that He is not angry with me. I'm at peace with God. I have standing before God. And so uh, this is an incentive for us to understand that as we look around the body of Christ, that we have all been made right, not by something we've done, but by something that we've received by faith, grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so these are us to desire to be in fellowship, in unity with one another. He mentions a comfort of love. This is not just any love, but this is the love of Christ. This is agape. This is the truest and the purest form of that. Of us understanding that God loves us not because of who we are or what we could ever become, but loving us for the sake of being created in His likeness, in the image of God being a bearer in some way of this image um, of God. Someone that God would seek to redeem, bring back to Him. Uh, that's a love that, that's just not being spoken, but it is love that's being 
demonstrated. And we understand that uh, there in Romans, uh, you know, part of what we would call the Roman road, that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he, he expressed or, or uh, he, he, he showed us this level of, of love and comfort to us. It is a comfort to us. Nobody will love you ever love you like Jesus. Everybody on this earth wants to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to think and believe that their life counts. Everybody wants those things. And there is a perfect love that is from God. A comfort to us who know Him. He mentions a fellowship with the Holy Spirit or fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, it's the idea, you know, like attracts like. The, the, the comfort and the fellowship that we find with one another is sharing in some of the same things. Now, chances are, friends that you have, you probably, you know, you like the same things or you uh, tend to have the same hobbies or things of that nature. You have a genuine enjoyment of your friendship and your fellowship. And we relate to that with one another, coming from different backgrounds and doing different uh, occupations and various things in life. But there is unity through the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a communion there. There is a witnessing aspect that takes a place between a believer and a believer because of this fellowship of the Spirit. He mentions the compassion of Christ, affection and mercy. To, to love uh, to show mercy. Uh, and Paul just wraps it up and says, look, when, when we look at what God has done for us, this is incentive for us to rally around the things of God, the truth of God, and live on mission for the glory of God. These are foundational things. Unity rests on this shared foundation of spiritual life in Jesus. And that is the key. Anything else has to flow from that foundation. So he gives us those incentives for unity in the church. And then he gives us three expressions of unity in the church. So as I often say, Paul in his writings, uh, he often uh, tells us what we should believe. Believe that this is what you are to do. you know. And we understand just from how we um, learn things. Uh, it's, it's easier to watch somebody do something uh, than just somebody uh, telling you how to do it or you reading it off of a piece of paper. It's, it takes on a different level when you see it uh, being done. And, uh, you know, YouTube uh, is, is part of our vernacular today just because of that aspect. You want to learn to play a guitar? Well, somebody will teach you. You, you, know, you want to learn to do something really stupid? Somebody's there to teach you. Uh, you know, it, it's just all over the place. And we understand that it's easier to watch somebody do something and learn uh, by that example. And so Paul tells us, these are the things you need to know. These are the things you need to believe about unity. And then this is how you express that. These are the expressions of unity in the local church. So he mentions verse 2. He says, I want you to fulfill my joy. Again, Paul's in prison. A lot of things to think about. But he says, you want to bring joy to me in my circumstances? He says, these are the things that bring me joy. Fulfill it this way. He says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one cord, of one mind. So again, the same worldview, like-minded, the same uh, principles of the Christian faith. 
Now, we understand in our culture today that, that the Christian worldview and the secular worldview are in contrast with each other. They are at odds with each other. It's not to say that they don't have some things that are in common, but, but they are at odds with each other. There is a, there's a goal of life that the world promotes that is different than the goal of life for the Christian. Okay? So it mentions a worldview, uh, a set of glasses, a set of biblical glasses that you wear and that interprets the events and the things that are going on in your life and your culture today and you're able to see them clearly because you're seeing them uh, through, a, through the mind of Christ, through a Christian worldview. Um, think about the last three years. Um, never before in history have we seen, have, have we witnessed the world's governments stopping everything they did, putting down, con, trashing their economies, and completely stopping life as we knew it, uh, like we saw with our response uh, to COVID over the last three years. We understood that all of a sudden in a, in, in a nation where we love freedom, or at least I thought we did, we found out that our face was not sovereign. You had to wear a mask to go out. We found out your body wasn't sovereign. You had to get a shot to even have a job. That that was mandated. And we understand that this is all the precursor to certain things. From an eschatological point of view, we understand that the Bible speaks of worldwide government. The Bible speaks of a mark that you will take to buy, to sell. And we witnessed a precursor of those things to come. A Christian worldview helps me understand that. A Christian, under, uh, Christian worldview helps me understand that there are things that are in play in our world today that the pieces to this grander puzzle are on the table and it's just a matter of getting the pieces in order. Those things are present in our culture today. So we understand that, that when we read the Bible years ago and we talked about all of these things were, that were eventually going to happen and we thought in our mind, how in the world would these things happen? How in the world would be people be able to witness uh, one moment certain things all over the world? We don't have those questions anymore. I mean, go turn on your television. People all over the world are watching the same game as you. They just might be doing it at dark. Uh, I've, I've shared this often uh, when Silas was a little, a little child. Were it not for the Olympics in Russia, I think, and Bob Costas' eye, I could not have stayed awake in the wee hours of the morning. But because of what I saw on NBC at, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I did not drop Silas on his head. Or at least I don't remember it. Make it through some of those as we swapped out, you know, those early morning feedings and things of that nature. Because we were all watching, I don't know how many people actually watch the Olympics, but the Winter Olympics at that. But anyway, they could have. And if they weren't watching that, we could have flipped a few channels over and all been buying the same goofy products that are advertised late at night that we know are not going to work, but we're tempted to buy them because we're half asleep. That's the purpose of the Home Shopping Network. They prey on your ability to do stupid things when you have had no rest and there's a kid in your lap with a bottle in his hand. They prey on that. They have a, an economic marketing model built around that thing. 
these things that, that, that can happen. We see uh, pictures of what will happen because we have a, a Christian worldview. We understand that there are things that are working on God's timeline and we're seeing those things to fruition. Pieces of those puzzles, uh, pieces of that puzzle that are, are being put together. But in addition to that worldview, there is the sharing of the same love. Seeing people the way Christ sees people. Loving people the way He loves them. That that's the, uh, the purpose behind one accord and one mind. And that these things bind us together. Again, this is an expression. This is now that you know, do it. Do something. If you know the truth, then live your life on that truth. The decisions that you make with your time and your talent and your treasure, let them be affected by your Christian worldview. Let them be affected by your love for Christ and your compassion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them be affected by the unity and the same mindset that we have as a a church in that we want to reach the world for Christ and that there is a singular message in doing that and that is the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that He loves you, He died for you and He will receive you and He will not cast out anyone who calls on that name. Hallelujah. It does not mean lockstep agreement on everything. There, there, there will always be uh, disagreements on certain things. Um, and sometimes you just have to agree to disagree because there are greater things that we are of the same mind and, and set on the same purpose about. The gospel, the love of Christ, His Christian values and teachings, those things are more important. He then moves on to the two steps that promote us doing these things that he's calling us to do. Now understand again, in the letter in which Paul writes to the church, they need this. They're they're not the perfect church because there are no perfect quote churches. We're all works in progress. And this church, later on, there's there's some squabbles. And so he's, he's telling them, believe this, Act like this. Solve the problem. Um, if, you're, if you're hemorrhaging, you need more than a Band-Aid. Amen? There's a reasoning behind this, right? You, you can try to stop the blood. There's a greater issue. That's what Paul's saying. There, there, there's, a, there's an issue here and that we need to treat the problem and not just the symptom. And so he digs into this idea of unity. He says, now this is how you promote this. These are are two things to promote this. In verse 4, let each of you, singular, right? Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest. Does anybody have to tell you to look out for your own interest? Do you have to be reminded of such? I mean, does does anybody have to? Now listen today now. I want you to make sure you look out for your own interest now. No. That just comes natural, right? That's just that's just the natural part of our life. We, you know, we're looking out for number one, right? So he says, and and you have to, right? That's not necessarily a bad thing, but he just says, not only for your own interest, not only just for that, but also for the interest of others. Also for the interest of others. He mentions in verse 3, scheming 
himself. Okay? Now, Paul's demonstrating this, isn't he? Here he is in, uh, he's in jail. There are plenty of things that I'm sure will occupy his mind. When is he going to have a trial? How much will he be able to say? How, you know, how much time will he have to, to, to have a proper defense? Um, will he be able When is any of that going? To whom will it be before? Many questions. Am I going to get fed today? A lot of things going on in Paul's mind, but, but what is he doing? He's esteeming others. And in this particular case, he's esteeming the faithful of a church that he planted in Philippi. That regardless of my needs, and, and they are real, they need this letter. They need this, this, this water. They need this fertilizer. They need this nurturing. Esteeming others better than yourself. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, humility. In other words, look around, right? See, seeing needs around you. And, and whether you can or cannot meet that need, to see people as they are, sinners who need a Savior. That God write folks off, put folks on the shelf, and walk away. And we're tempted to do that from time to time. Some people we, we have to separate from for a time at least. Those things are part of our world. Those things are part of the ebb and flow relationships and lives. But too, too often... We live in a culture today where everything is disposable. We don't fix anything anymore. We, we use it, we throw it away. We, whatever it is, printers, you just name it today. It's, it's almost like it's disposable because the cost of fixing it is more than just replacing it. And, and we're so enamored with that idea that it bleeds over into the personal side of things with relationships with folks. And the reality is, people are special. Created in the image of God. They, these folks have a soul. Eternity is real. And there is a heaven and there is a hell. The people are not disposable. And, and we, we're too much in this mindset that, well, I can't help them, so, you know, they're going to reap what they sow. Oh, that's true. But it doesn't change the fact that people are created in the image of the Lord just like we are. And we all are in need of the same thing, a Savior. We need community. We need the fellowship of one another. We're not made to live on islands by ourselves. You know, people talk about, hey, what would you do if you're stranded on a desert? I don't want to know that. I don't care. I don't want to be on a deserted island with whatever. I, I, I don't want to live that way. I, I like people. I need people. We need each other. God made us that way. To live in community, to live in fellowship. And he says you promote it by recognizing that from time to time we have to recognize there are greater needs and we have to meet those needs. And sometimes they're the needs of our own self. That doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. That doesn't mean that you don't have to refresh and, and, and refill and refuel. It doesn't mean that you don't do those things. 
But he says this is how you promote the expression of what you believe with respect to unity. Uh, people who teach, you, you live in a work environment where you're managing people, you get this, you see this, you have to do this. This is what makes it work. Because they bring your problems, their problems to you. The problems at home show up at work. Problems at home show up in the classroom. You try to manage that. You try to realize that, that this child acts to a great degree how they act because of what they're dealing with at home. And you try to look over it and you try to give them the benefit of the doubt because you recognize that. You esteem them greater than the reality that you're about to go crazy. And you move on and you press on. But when you get home and you get away from that, you have to refresh. You have to refuel. We recognize that. And then Paul sums this all up with one supreme example. He gives us four incentives. He gives us three expressions. He gives us two ways in order to promote that. And he gives us one example to look at. Now it's interesting, he spent four verses. Four verses laying out what you believe, what you need to do, and how you're to promote that action through that church. And he spends the rest of that showing us the example in Christ and in his life. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. What we talked about, what he shared, he says, let it be in you because it was in the mind of Christ. And he says, and by the way, remember this. In verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was fully God, yet fully man. But he chose, in verse 7, to make himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Christ came into this world the same way that we all came into this earth, into this world. We were born, we had an earthly mom, a dad, we had siblings, and we grew up in a world that treated us no different than, than anybody else, per se. He experienced that. He says in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now he expresses that the death of the cross is unique to just any other death. And, and, and historically, if you understand the crucifixion and the purpose of that, it was meant to be a death different than any other death. It was a death that was, that was reserved, first of all, for the most vile criminal. It, it was a, a death that was uh, set aside for uh, those that were not Roman citizens. According to their own law, if you were a Roman, you, you could not be crucified. It was that cruel. It was that inhumane. It was that disturbing. Because understand, when this took place, it, it was by a road for a purpose. They wanted maximum exposure, maximum humility. And so it was with Christ. In his case, it was the road that led to Golgotha, a place that was set up on a hill. So even if you didn't walk by it, you could still see it. The point was humility. The point was uh, crushing, humiliation. 
being a spectacle. Why? Because they wanted other people to get the idea that if you break our laws, this is what we do to vile people. They did not believe cash bond for, for open criminals in their society. Not only was it cruel, not only was it inhumane, and not only was it reserved for the most foul, but the death on the cross in particular was, a, was about a man who knew no sin that bore the sin of the world. That was not his, but it was mine, and it was yours, and it was not just what I had done, because I, at the time he's being crucified, I wasn't born, neither were you, but he bore in his body all of our sin, past, present, and future, and because of that, in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and every knee is going to bow at that name. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Attitudes and actions matter. Attitudes and actions make results. And we've been given this example that God walked among, He washed feet, He made Himself of no reputation, in the form of a servant, and we're to do nothing less. We're, we're, we're to do nothing less. That's who we are. That's who God's called us to be. And I'm reminded that in days past, these were things that we experienced. We read behind lives, uh, you know, the, the, the biographies of people that did these things, that were faithful. Whether, whether they were missionaries, church planners, pastors, deacons, teachers, leaders, it, it didn't matter. We just did them. That was the, as Paul would say, in reasonable service. And I'm reminded of a story, and I know I've shared it before, but it's just such a beautiful picture of, of someone that God gets a hold of and transforms not only their life, but because their life has been transformed, other lives are transformed. George Muller was, was a man that, as a college student, he, he was a thief, he was rogue, just a misfit, going to college for every other reason except to get an education. Some things never change. And uh, here, here's a man who shows up at a youth or, you know, a college Christian uh, event, a social party, and he goes there for the purpose of making fun of Christians. That's what he's going for in his own admission. And yet he shows up and, and, and he's there for that reason, but God uses that as a divine appointment to transform his life. And God got a hold of him and he never could get loose. And God took a man that was an agnostic, didn't care a thing in the world about the things of God, saved that man's soul, and George Muller would go on to, to, to have a ministry that affected thousands and thousands of orphans in England for years. His life exhibited a level of faith that when I read about it, I'm just amazed that a man would have that level of faith. Literally waking up that morning knowing there's nothing to feed any of these children, but by faith we're going to go into that chow hall and we're going to sit down and God will make a way. And he did again and again and again 
when God transforms our lives, we begin to be used by God to transform other lives. And you can't do that if you don't have mission and if you don't have purpose and if you don't have direction. And that's the purpose of unity. You can't fulfill the purpose and the will of God if everybody's running in a different direction. It's important what we believe. It's important how we understand that we are to take the message personally and we're to share that. We're to live out that message faithfully in our lives, in every place we go. Work, home, wherever. We're to live that out. That is that expression, the promotion of these things, ultimately uh, for the glory of God. God would move upon our hearts and that we would be these people that Paul speaks of. That we would take this letter, we'd take this message, and it would feed our souls. It would water our hearts to produce the fruit that would be pleasing unto the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, with humble hearts this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. God, forgive us in our failures and help us to express these things, these actions of affection and mercy. And may you be honored and glorified in our lives. We confess our need for you. And God, whatever way we need to respond faithfully today during this time of invitation, give us the strength to do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.